0: Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery back again with another CHP episode, number 160 this time. Our story today concerns the life of someone who, like the topic itself, never quite made it into the history books. I know everyone likes the big topics. Revolutions, dynasties, emperors, heroes, culture, and stuff like that. Jack Jones and the FAU is not one such topic. The story of Jack Jones and the organization he was associated with intrigued me for a number of reasons. One, uh, you know, being sort of a nobody myself, his China story kind of spoke to me. A few episodes back, we looked at the Flying Tigers and their story of coming to China's defense in those dark days between December 1937 and Pearl Harbor. Huffington Post's man in Beijing, Matt Sheehan, in a recent story mentioned about an old soldier, Zheng Wei Bang, In Chengdu, who after so many decades remembered the Flying Tigers and still into his 90s, thanks them to this day. The FAU wasn't quite as famous as the Flying Tigers. No one made any movies about them, so far as I know. But in a quiet and behind-the-scenes way, they did a lot of good in China. And the work they did out in West China has all but been forgotten. But with the intervention of Mr. Andrew Hicks... This forgotten story has been painstakingly researched and brought back from the dead. And today in this episode, we're going to shine a spotlight on the FAU in West China. The stories we usually remember, Matteo Ricci, Robert Hart, Norman Bethune, George Haydam, Edgar Snow, you know, all the big stories, the big names, the ones who got written into the history books... They act as examples where we can see the selfless devotion of Western people who came to China and lent some assistance. They did it for love of China, love of humanity, or both, or for any number of reasons. Andrew Hicks' book is entitled, Jack Jones, A True Friend of China, The Lost Writings of a Heroic Nobody, The Friends Ambulance Unit, China Convoy, 1945-1951. Talk about an obscure outfit. The FAU, the Friends Ambulance Unit, was an NGO that went back to World War I. You know how the whole charity system works. The rich and the poor give money or donate things to go help the needy. Money is raised at these lavish fundraisers or quietly in church box collections. People, you know, being charitable by nature, give a lot of money. And this money goes to fund... All these projects that aid other people in desperate situations. Once the aid got to where it was supposed to go, there actually had to be someone competent and trustworthy on the other end to pack it all up into a truck and drive it to the specific places where the aid was meant to go. That's what these people of the FAU, the Friends Ambulance Unit, did. The Friends, who were the Friends? Friends of who? These were the Quakers. Their official name for their religious organization is the Religious Society of Friends. The Quakers, William Penn, Roundtree and Cadbury, Susan B. Anthony, to name a few, and Sir Edmund Backhouse, too. We in America can't help but know of the Quakers from the portly, 18th-century-looking gent on the boxes of all Quaker Oats products. If you noticed, he's been slimmed down a little for a healthier 21st-century look. Oatmeal aside, the Quakers had two main beliefs that sort of set them apart. First was the idea of the universal priesthood. This wasn't new. Luther called for this before. But they made it one of their foundation stones that no middlemen or go-betweens were needed between the one praying and the one to whom the prayer was ultimately meant to go to. The other thing was their belief in pacifism, nonviolence, Period. Perhaps their pacifist principles most of all define the Quakers, at least in the American conscience. The Quakers were at the forefront of the abolition movement and for equal rights for women. They were anti racist and never dressed flashy. They didn't drink booze. People made fun of them because they would say things like how they trembled upon hearing the name of the Lord. And because they trembled, they were jokingly called Quakers by members of rival religions, and it was a term that derided them, like when the Cantonese people called these people from North China hakas, or guest people. Like the Hakkas did before them, the Quakers took ownership of this derisive name and embraced it, and that's how we mostly know of them today. But the Quakers, amongst themselves, they were simply friends. They wouldn't say back then, hey, is he a Quaker? It'd be more like, is he a friend? So the Friends Ambulance Unit, later called the Friends Service Unit, the FSU, this was a Quaker-funded relief organization. This story takes place mostly in and around Chongqing, right after Japan surrendered, Boy, I'll tell you, we've rambled on endlessly in so many past episodes about the times back then. The chaos, the fighting, the breakdown of civil order, famines, and political crises. There's no need for me to tell you things were tough in China between 1945 and 1950. That was a rough half decade by any historical standard. Mao isn't in this story, neither is Zhu De or Zhou Enlai. It doesn't involve any famous battles or glorious acts of bravery. It's about a bunch of Quakers and people who weren't Quakers themselves, but who carried in their heart the idea of pacifism. Once again, plain, old, ordinary people. The FAU-China convoy transported medical and relief supplies to all points in mostly West China. The people of the FAU were what was known back then as conchies. That was a derisive term for a conscientious objector. You could register as one in World War I, and this got you out of any fighting. But it didn't get you out of the war. There was more to fighting wars than firing a gun. So these conscientious objectors served willingly and patriotically in other non-combat ways. The FAU provided one outlet for conscientious objectors to perform their wartime service. The Quakers had been coming to China since 1896. That's when they began sending their own missions there. It was the British Religious Society of Friends who launched the Friends Ambulance Unit. The unit served in France and Belgium during World War I. 1936 to 1946, they drove ambulances and served their fellow man in and around London. In 1941, they went to China and served throughout the war, transporting medical supplies and providing basic medical services. In all, the FAU served in more than 25 countries. In 1947, they won the Nobel Peace Prize. It was jointly awarded to the Friends Service Council in London and the American Friends Service Committee in Philadelphia. Once Japan surrendered and with wartime service no longer being necessary, the FAU was handed off to the American Friends Service Committee, the AFSC, based in the city of Brotherly Love. They ran it from 1946 to 1951. That's the time period of our story today. It was not easy to operate in this dysfunctional environment. And in the midst of all this craziness, these American and British group of people, most only with a smattering of Chinese language ability, ran a transport unit on the south bank of the Yangtze River in the bombed-out wartime capital of Chongqing. If you read Andrew Hicks's book, you'll see right away there were plenty of characters. I'm not going to talk too much about them because I wanted to focus on Jack Jones. Why him? Why this heroic nobody, as the author calls him? Well, for starters, he was the self-appointed chronicler of these times. He was the Sumachen of the group. Jack Jones and everyone associated with the Friends Ambulance Unit all worked out of this garage depot on the south bank of the Yangtze. He wrote this internal newsletter that he would type out on this flimsy paper and lacking the convenience of email. It would get passed around from one to the other. Copies were sent to the head office in Shanghai uh, to let them know what was going on. If he did this thing today, we'd call it a blog. Well, he did the mid-20th century version of this. These writings by Jack Jones during his stint in Chongqing provide us with a real nice grassroots look at daily life in post-World War II China, the time period we know is the Chinese Civil War. Chongqing was one of the last places the PLA marched into and in Took over. So, all these recently discovered writings locked away in some friends' archives in the UK and America tell a story we don't get to hear that often. I'm only going to read a few excerpts from the book just to give you a feel. If you read the book cover to cover, you really get a nice high res feel about these ordinary people in this very extraordinary situation. He was born Emrys Reynolds Jones in Hertfordshire, June nineteenth, nineteen thirteen. Miss Paul McCartney's birthday by a single day. His father was a Congregational church minister. I don't know what is there to say about Jack Jones except his CV states that he worked on a fishing trawler in the North Sea, as a gardener, he labored at a sugar beet factory, dug potatoes, and served as a tour guide in Wales not an overachiever. From there, he moved on to work for a gentleman, a sculptor, who introduced him to the world of pacifism. These values spoke to Jack sufficiently enough so that he registered as a conscientious objector in 1940. He never became a Quaker, but this strong pacifist belief brought him in contact with the Friends This led Jack to file an application to join the FAU in 1944. He was accepted and began training with them for 16 months. Among the skills he picked up and ended up using to a high degree were first aid and all the basic things one might encounter in a small clinic. The other thing he learned and put to good use was motor and vehicle mechanics. You're wondering what medicine and auto mechanics have in common. Absolutely nothing. But this was one of the key aspects of Jack Jones' life. The other side of Jack Jones was his writing. Just because he was this aimless, blue-collar sort didn't mean he was illiterate. Under the name of Jack Reynolds, he published a worldwide bestseller in 1956 called Woman of Bangkok. It came out around the same time, or just before uh, the world of Susie Wong hit the bookstores. He was sort of a one-hit wonder and never followed up on his successful first time at bat. He was a prolific writer during his time in Chongqing, and dare I say, when it came to verbosity, he even gave your humble narrator a run for his money. I'm going to read a bunch of excerpts from his newsletters and correspondence throughout this episode. He as a way of saying things, the FAU that worked out of that South Bank garage in Chongqing were there to support the relief efforts of the International Relief Committee, the IRC. They were based in Shanghai. They were set up and funded by various mission organizations who brought in tons and tons and tons of medical supplies, drugs and equipment that was distributed throughout the system to handle Western China, the IRC turned to the FAU. All their trucks, equipment, and the South Bank Depot were passed over from the IRC to the FAU to take over and manage. The FAU was managed, again, by the folks in Philadelphia, the AFSC, the American Friends Service Committee. And again, as soon as the Yanks took over, they changed the name of the FAU to the FSU, Friends Service Unit. They drove these beat up 1944 Dodge three-ton trucks, and delivered badly needed medicines and supplies on behalf of the IRC. Talk about hazardous. Let me quote Jack's uh, version of events when his five-truck convoy got held up making a run from Chongqing to Xichang. Today you can make that drive in 10 or 11 hours. Xichang back in those days was part of Xikong province, one of those pre P.R.C. provinces that we sometimes saw in the history books, written as S.I.K.A.N.G., it doesn't exist anymore. And half that province is in eastern Tibet and westernmost Sichuan. Quote, we flatter ourselves, Michael and the boys and me, that you will all be eager to hear of our encounter with the bandits. It happened at about the 171 kilo stone, which is 18 kilos up the Siping Pass, and still around seven kilos short of the top. It was an easy second-gear slope, and 67 was pulling up it nicely at about 8 miles per hour. As we approached a left-hand hairpin bend, I noticed three men on the rocks watching us. But then again, people always watch trucks go by. We swung around the bend, and 30 yards ahead of us, some big stones, too big to drive over, were laid across the road. I pulled up to let Yang Kong Fu get out and move them, and at that moment, the shooting began. Shouting men began to appear all over the place, popping up from rocks and thickets on both sides of the road. Yang Kung Fu got on the bottom of the cab and considerately switched off the engine. Then a shot hit the frame of the windscreen, bang, in front of me, cracking the glass in all directions and knocking out the right-hand dashlight. The next second, we were hit again. I decided to get out and see if a little foreign tact would do any good. It didn't. Three chaps, armed to the teeth with revolvers and rifles, rushed up and felt me all over for guns. Then another bloke arrived and began thrashing me with the flat of his sword. He knocked me down and continued to thrash me as I lay on the ground. Then two others tied my hands behind my back and tied me to a tree. Meanwhile, everything was being hurled off the truck and slashed open with swords and stones. Soon I saw Chang Min-san and Yang Kong-fu tied together, and shortly afterwards I was tied to them and told to sit down by the fire. The chief man was quite considerate and told the bandits not to take our clothes, papers, or sleeping bags. The bandits were not very obedient. Soon one lot of bandits was firing at another lot, and when the air was thick with bullets, I thought the thieves were falling out amongst themselves with a Vengeance. I didn't realize that the other four trucks had arrived and were being attacked. We were soon told to get up and go away with the bandits. They forced us to climb the mountain with them. I like climbing mountains usually, but when your hands are tied to two other blokes with a short rope, it is not a very pleasant business. Eventually, we prevailed on the bandits, some of whom were reasonable chaps, to untie us. And after that, it wasn't so bad. They seemed a bit vague what to do with us. When we were just about knocked, we came on a bandit cheese, meaning the top guy. He looked every inch a bandit, but was quite decent, asked us to rest a while and noticed we were wet and shivering, tossed us a hospital pajama jacket apiece, which had been taken from our cargo. We sat in the mist and rain for what seemed hours, waiting while they decided what to do with us. Soon we were amazed to hear our trucks being started and moved, then shots, The bandits seemed as concerned as we were. Soon, two breathless bandits toiled up out of the mist and announced that soldiers had arrived. The few bandits still around disappeared with their loads in all directions. The biggest gang took us. We were taken down the other side of the ridge, which was thick with snow. And on a scree slope, I got half crippled by a stone, which gave me an awful whack on the back of my leg. I have a scar two inches square there. We went on and on until it was almost dark, and the bandits consented kindly to let us go back. You could guess what it was like, climbing that snow slope again, going down the other side of the ridge in the rain, soaked and falling over every second, and finally getting lost in a thicket of bamboos. But eventually we reached the road, right by Changming Ming San's truck, which had been neatly parked like all the rest. We got a big petrol fire going, and found some sea rations, and opened up some boxes of pajamas and pullovers. Thus clad, we spent the night in the cabs. Next morning, we loaded up the trucks and went on to Fulin. We were held up again at what looked like a checking station, but is actually a bandit's headquarters. Quite illegally, he charges everybody who goes by his set prices, 3000 per coolie, 80000 per truck from Xichang, 150000 per truck from Jiading. He respected our papers and we parted friends. He has 600 men that are better armed than the troops and everybody is sick to death of them. Michael was beaten too, but he's all right now. The road to Xichang is washed out in seven places, but we hope to go there in three days. The thing to be kept in mind in regard to the above trip is that this convoy has to return to Chongqing over the same route. Let's hope this return trip is made with less difficulty than the trip out. We reckon the bandits got about one and a half tons of cargo. They got all my personal stuff, including both pairs of glasses and my passport. All I have left is the clothes I had on and my precious umbrella. Also, they thrashed us and we still have the marks on our backs. If they catch us on the way back, the price for our ransom is expected to be 200 ounces of silver, according to present prices. End quote. Jack and the rest of the convoy survived that ordeal that went down end of may 1947 and lived on to drive many more convoys but that was the kind of stuff they faced time and again and there were no cell phones no 9 or chp call boxes along the side of the road that's california highway patrol not the more well-known history podcast this kind of stuff happened all the time and they had to deal with it West China, mid to late 1940s, this was a rough theater to operate in. Conscientious objectors to the man they may have been, but their work was often no less hazardous than the infantry marching to battle. In any number of situations that this convoy might face, death or dismemberment was always a real-life situation. There were a lot of Jack Joneses who had similar or even more harrowing adventures in China during this rough and tumble time. Most of their stories are either lost or buried in some attic or archive, waiting for their Andrew Hicks to come in and discover them. Jack and his colleagues at the FSU weren't the only ones. But in looking at this one example of Westerners who came to China like Jack, I hope we can all get a sense of... All these people, their adventures and their acts of selflessness. The friends who operated out of that garage, unlike the missionaries, weren't there to preach the gospel or distribute Bibles. They moved precious medical cargo to all these far-flung regions of West China. Populating these towns were plain old of the most common sort, and they filled these hospitals and clinics, usually managed and funded by missions and other religious organizations. By early 1948, those in the know began to realize the nationalists were not going to win. In 1945, it was almost unthinkable that they could be beat, but not anymore. But many naive foreigners, the FSU China convoy people included, felt that Since they weren't engaged in politics and merely did good in society by transporting supplies for Chinese, regardless of a nationalist or communist bent, they didn't think the future looked that dismal for them. Once the tide began to turn against the nationalists, a lot of NGOs began cashing in their chips and started closing down shop. Even at the South Bank garage, people began to take off. 1948, 1949, China. This is the kind of thing that was going on. I mean, we've seen it time and again. Iran, 1979, Vietnam, 1975. We all know what this kind of thing is like. But Jack and the stalwarts at the Chongqing garage figured they could ride it out and see what happens. Chongqing, back in the day, was referred to as part of free China. Parts of China that hadn't yet been taken over by the communists. In the final months before Mao stood on the Tiananmen platform on 10-149, life went on at the South Bank Garage. Jack, writing in his rebranded Overseas Chronicle newsletter, wrote, The new government has not gone out of its way to cooperate with foreigners, and this unit is no exception. The main practical difficulty is regarding travel. No foreign unit member, old or new, has been allowed to enter communist territory since early April. Even permission to travel about within the liberated areas has been difficult to obtain. At the beginning of the year, we had about 70 tons of International Relief Committee medical supplies in our go-downs to be allocated and distributed. During that month, ECA supplies, the American-funded Economic Cooperation Administration, began to arrive. And we all had the trucks struggling to get about 400 tons of medical supplies and pesticides up to our go-downs from across the river. The struggle was due to the imminence of New Year, the scarcity of cash to pay coolies, the wreck of one Sampam, the bogging down of trucks in the riverbed, and the fact that stuff always arrived at the airfield 50 tons at a time, usually just before dark, and usually on a Saturday or Sunday. A word should be said about our Dodges. The fleet is now greatly decimated. The 33 have come down to 13. In spite of the hard wear and tear the trucks are still in good condition and look more presentable than most on the roads. During the last few weeks, there has been a wholesale clear-out of the less desirable missionaries. They have toddled off to Java and Manila and India, where it is slightly safer to save souls for the Lord at the present day, and have dropped a whole lot of projects which they had only just started in the last 18 months or so when they came here from other parts of China that were getting dangerous. There's plenty we could do in West China, Nay, in Chongqing, if we wanted to, end quote. I won't get into details here, but there were a bunch of pet dogs that hung around the depot, and you know how Brits and Yanks are with their canines. These were all special pets and all had names, and you know, Jack writes about the dogs a, a lot in his newsletters. This passage was dated uh, 14th of September, 1949. Quote, Amongst the dogs, there is nothing but tragedy to report. Cuthbert was shot. Phoebe, the matriarch, Xiao Bien and Da Bien were run over. Betsy died. Pooch was shot, but recovered with expert nursing. Xiao Bien also had been shot through the shoulder and had to wear a splint for three weeks. We have now only Pooch, Stinker, the handsome bully, and two almost full-grown pups of Phoebe's last litter, Wee Wee and Pidley. These are both females, so the future outlook is bright, end quote. The head office in America, the AFSC, kept writing forcefully to Jack, telling him to shut the place down and get out. The belief was that Western organizations weren't going to get any cooperation under the communists, and the time had come to get out while the going was good. In times like this, it's always the most devoted who decide to risk it all and stay behind. A lot of relief organizations streamed through the exits to get out. But a lot of relief workers stayed put. Jack and the remaining FSC workers did just that. As long as relief supplies continued to arrive in China, the FSC and Chongqing felt their job wasn't done yet. I won't get into detail, but around the time Ma was saying his piece on the platform of the Gate of Heavenly Peace, Jack was dying in the hospital from scrub typhus. This one almost did him in, and it took quite a while for Jack to crawl back into the saddle. I can't imagine how horrible it must have been for Jack or anyone getting run through the typhus ringer and that Chongqing heat and humidity at the moment a new nation was being declared. Anyway, Jack survived it. So on the one hand, Jack was being pressured to get up, get out, and vacate the premises. Jack was saying that there was still a ton of stuff they could do. Money was... More scarce than usual, and in these tumultuous times, the banking system was spotty at best. To keep the garage afloat and ensure payroll was met, the FSU generated revenue by extorting other relief organizations or foreign consulates with exorbitant transport fees. The other way to make money was hit and miss. You know, if you're like a Hong Kong taxi driver and you drop someone off on the peak at 2 in the morning... It would sure be nice if someone was waiting there looking for a ride down to Wan Chai or maybe across the harbor. Same with the FSU. The hope was that after they dropped their load somewhere in West China, there was someone there desperately looking for a convoy to take their cargo to Chongqing. Between these very lucrative return cargo jobs and overcharging distressed foreigners clamoring to vacate the brand new People's Republic, they kept everything going. And I want to repeat, this was all in Civil War Chongqing, right at the moment when China was transitioning from the ROC to the PRC. In one of his dispatches to the head office, Jack Jones remained optimistic about the future prospects and said of this friend service unit, quote, FAU transport is better known in China than any other FSU work. People, missionaries, doctors, and such, often say to me, long after your malaria projects and your other flyaway projects are forgotten, FAU transport will be remembered. It is the one unique FAU contribution which is unquestionably useful and irreplaceable. I agree with this view, and I believe that we are so well known and have such a good reputation that we could survive the changeover and continue to function, end quote. And this core unit operating out of that rundown depot on the south bank of the Yangtze combined their skills and magic, like like the Ba Xian Guo Hai, the Eight Immortals, remember them? To make everything happen, Jack wrote, quote, do you realize that with the exception of the new blacksmith, not one of our employees has been with us less than three years? That the whole 47 of them are welded into one team that works, each member in perfect harmony with his fellows? You have here a very fine instrument for relief work, forged and tempered during the nine years of hardship and adventure. It would be ridiculous to break that tool to pieces unless quite convinced there was no place for it in West China. End quote. Jack began to make impassioned statements on behalf of his Chinese staff. I think he sort of knew the end was going to come sooner or later and that this wasn't going to have an amicable ending with the Chinese staff. The AFSC had earmarked $2,500 to pay off all Chinese employees and repatriate them to wherever they came from. We'll see later on when they cross that bridge finally. It was messy indeed. I wanted to lift a quote from Andrew Hicks. He gave quite a decent summation of the daily grind for these guys that did this job, and certainly says it better than I can. Quote, Convoys out on the road had to be self-sufficient, sometimes waiting weeks to obtain spares and digging themselves out when roads and culverts collapsed under them. But somehow, against all odds, the medical supplies had to get through. What they had to deal with was overloaded worn-out trucks short of spears constantly breaking down and tires bursting all day they endured drafty cabs that were desperately hot and humid or else freezing cold unpadded seats and hard springs and potholes that jarred the kidneys there were hold-ups when bridges were down landslides torrential rain and feeble wipers brakes constantly failing There were holdups when papers and permits didn't satisfy, when soldiers demanded a ride, life-threatening holdups by bandits, squalid inns and ticks that kill with typhus when you stop for the night, and China had no real road system, certainly none that were sealed. Impossible hairpins up the mountains, the truck crawling at a walking pace, if at all. Thousands of kilometers to go for weeks and months at a time, and on board medical supplies that was desperately needed to save lives, end quote. Made me think of that Norman Bethune episode, CHP 113, how he died out in the middle of nowhere of a treatable disease. If the transport had been operating, he perhaps would have survived. He's a famous example of someone at the end of the supply chain who depended on these medical supplies delivered by selfless souls like these Quakers and other like-minded individuals. The Friends Service Unit? They were just helping the common folk, the nobodies, the Shijing Xiaoming of Western China. And as the communists took the last vestiges of control from the nationalists, this created an entirely new dynamic for Jack and everyone at the South Bank Garage. Even as this was happening, Jack Jones, in the face of calls for him to shut that operation down and get out, was very intent on transforming the garage into a clinic to help the poor. He was sure he could do it and made impassioned pleas for support for his idea. He got his clinic. Mind you, it didn't get the kind of funding he hoped. So the transport side of the FSU didn't get shut down just yet. Work they got delivering supplies paid most of the bills of running the clinic. This was around the end of 1949. The New People's Republic of China had just been formally founded. On January 21st, 1950 the PLA made themselves known in Chongqing. Jack wrote, quote, Next morning, when we woke up, we found communist soldiers in our yard. Later that morning, they borrowed three of our trucks, and a few minutes after that, an officer came in and told us our trucks were not KMT trucks and no further use would be made of them. There was no more excitement until that night at ten, when Flita looked up and said, Oh, what a lovely pink sky. There must be a fire somewhere. We just had time to duck when the wall by my ear came in about a foot and went back again in that old familiar way, and the windows burst open over our heads and a sound of tinkling glass was heard all over the shop. This really was a butte and blew in our bedroom wall in one place and busted several walls of go-downs. Nobody was hurt, but we have been dealing with some dreadful casualties since. I was called in to Tuchel the next day to see a communist staff officer in this district. I must say, this officer and the other communists I have met this far have made an exceedingly good impression. The officer asked us about our unit. We were told to carry on as usual until the political officers arrived, and this we are doing to the best of our ability, Jack found out later the retreating nationalists had blown up an ammunition depot with devastating effects, and followed that up with an impromptu mini-white terror gunning down any communist-leaning elements in Chongqing, many, of course, students and teachers. The strain of the past years, the frustrations, always short of money, living on the edge, the sudden political changes in China, the closing down of the operation, and the whole messy matter of angry Chinese employees who thought they were getting screwed on the severance package. These all combined to lead Jack to a suicide attempt in January 1950. He survived, but as you might imagine, it was quite a trauma, especially to a man who was probably quite traumatized already. Despite everyone's sincerest hopes that there was still a place for them in China, in the end, there wasn't. Not for these Americans and British nationals. They had to close down shop, and that happened in May 1950. In the end, they're just there weren't any more supplies left to transport. It was over. After Jack's suicide attempt, he passed his title as West China Director of the Friends Service Unit to someone else. From that point on, Jack did all he could, earning commissions from middlemaning a bunch of deals involving the disposal of equipment of all sorts. For those last months, the FSC, he was like John Malkovich's character, Basie, from Empire of the Sun living by his wits and surviving through acts of buying and selling. And the locals began to get the sense that, under this new government, there was going to be some payback that was going to go down, and not just against the foreigners, but against those who worked side by side with these foreigners. This thinned out the ranks of locals uh, associated with the South Bank garage. It also impacted the amount of enthusiasm with which locals went out of their way to provide help or assistance. Then once June 25th, 1950 came along and the Korean War started, politically things turned very hot for Jack, the remaining FSU staff, and for all Westerners caught in China. This was especially for China's new enemy number one, the United States. See, there were still quite a few who, like Jack Jones, didn't immediately leave. The new PRC government hadn't thought of a plan for how to handle all this what followed was really a kafka-esque nightmare of waiting for exit permits and while all these westerners stuck in china missionaries ngo workers businessmen and a cast of thousands of minnows all stuck in this net they had to face us sometimes hostile populace who knew the coast was clear to blow off some steam and give these foreigners a taste of their own arrogant medicine anyone who always had even the slightest xenophobic itch to scratch lived at the perfect time it was open season to get back at foreign employers bosses and any other privileged so-and-so under the ancien regime if you wanted to file a grievance against a former employer new and efficient channels were now at your disposal Despite the changes, once the transport unit was completely shuttered, the clinic, Jack's brainchild and his new passion, kept going. All manners of Lao Xing from in and around Chongqing made their way to this clinic for all their medical ailments. These tended to be mostly skin lesions and respiratory afflictions. It had operated concurrently with the transport unit, but now with the Transportation unit shut down, it was a full-time medical facility, and much expanded. Jack had written of the South Bank Clinic, as they called it, quote, The history of the South Bank Clinic dates from November 5, 1950, when we threw open our doors to all comers. The majority went into the first room, where John, assisted by the Rumens and the Yens, dealt with abscesses, skin diseases, coughs, and stomach upsets. In an inner sanctum, Jack and Fleta dealt with all the gyno cases, and anything sent through by John is doubtful. Besides normal clinic work, a number of specialties are carried on. There is a scabies clinic in a converted truck body in which one of the employees scrubs and anoints the males, while Dorothy Ruman is bath attendant to the women and children. Dr. Nutting started an eye clinic, which is carried on by Mrs. Sam, assisted by yet another chap out of the garage who puts in about three hours daily on trachoma, etc. This eye clinic deals with roughly 70 people a day. The vast majority of patients seem to have minor complaints, which we are all well able to deal. The government has so far displayed little interest in our clinic, either friendly or critical. End quote. The government of China had a little more in their mind in 1950 than the FSU and their clinic. But in December 1950, they indeed shut it down after one full year of service to the communities. Jack had delivered 180 babies during the lifetime of this clinic and during his stay in China. Not bad considering he was mainly a driver and a mechanic. Dorothy Ruman gave a pretty good summation of daily life at the clinic in a letter back home. Quote, the sun very seldom peeks through the clouds. Our hands are continuously cold and the candles don't shed much light. But these are trivial inconveniences. Constantly we are reminded by the sores, the semi-nudity, the patched and tattered garments hanging from shivering shoulders. On all sides there are the unheated shacks where a slim candle provides the only extension of daylight, where fuel is so scarce that it cannot be spared from the cooking to wash the dirt and scabies from a baby's blistered body with warm water. Existence here for these people is unadorned simplicity, a round of birth, childhood, work, procreation, and death, lavishly sprinkled with empty tummies, cold toes, and dirty sores. End quote. So, and in 1950, it was completely shut down, and the 16 trucks that remained, who knows how many miles they already had put on, were all sent to the CIC, the Chinese Industrial Cooperative's Bailia School in Shandan, Gansu Province. The CICs and these Bailia schools we'll look at in more detail when we cover the amazing life of the great New Zealander, Rui Ali. Now, the name of the game was to find a way out of China. The foreigners stuck in this Agonizing limbo weren't particularly meant to feel welcome in the new China. But on the other hand, the authorities didn't make it easy for them to leave. Little by little, the exit permits began to trickle in. And by mid-May 1951, Jack and the last of the unit got theirs and were able to get out, crossing the border into Hong Kong on June 1st, 1951. That was one long half-year period between the time the clinic was closed and the time these last FSU members were able to leave China. This book is chock-filled with all the details of the ordeal. I've read several excerpts from the book, but for the most part, the content is all letters and Jack's dispatches. Jack arrived in Hong Kong after what was truly a long stretch of lacking any of the pleasures of comfort and convenience. He lived as high on the hog as an NGO worker in between assignments could in Hong Kong and recovered from his most recent ordeals. Like everyone else in the unit, he moved on to another job. For Jack, this was a position with UNICEF in Thailand as a transport officer, something he was eminently qualified for. As I mentioned at the outset, Jack enjoyed a spot of fame with his book, Woman of Bangkok. He lived out the rest of his days there, enjoying a bit of local fame amongst the circle of expats and some of the Thais who associated with him. He married a Thai Catholic woman, and together they had six sons and a daughter. He only returned to England once. It wasn't for that long. Thinking back on what it was like in Thailand during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, especially during the Vietnam War... I'm sure Jack lived a good life. Jack Jones died in a Bangkok hospital in his 71st year from cancer of the ear and from pneumonia. In closing, let me quote Andrew Hicks, who wrote of Jack's writings. Quote, Those newsletter articles have, I hope, now been given a new life, and Jack should be recognized as a fine blogger of the pre-electronic age, leaving behind a unique impression of the unsung work of an obscure Quaker unit and a last glimpse of feudal China as the new communist era was dawning. His Chongqing stories also remind us what can be achieved against all the odds when deeply held principles really matter to a group of like-minded people. Historical lessons are too readily forgotten, and the message of pacifism and nonviolence that Jack and his fellow workers taught by example sadly needs many reminders today, end quote. The book is called Jack Jones, A True Friend of China, The Lost Writings of a Heroic Nobody, collected and edited by Mr. Andrew Hicks. I hope you enjoyed this Overview of the Friends Ambulance Unit, China Convoy. The book is available at quakerbooks.org or through Andrew's website. I'll put links to them all on uh, the CHP website. The book, by the way, was uh, published by the Venerable House of Earnshaw. If you love books about Asia, please go check them out. The legendary Graham Earnshaw. Visit them at earnshawbooks.com. Quality books on China and beyond. Sorry, this one took a little longer than usual. Next up is going to be one of those patented CHP long-winded multi-episode series on a topic that has been requested almost as much as TCM. I hope you'll enjoy it. Be looking for that soon, although October is looking pretty dicey. But we'll see. Anyone who has even a passing fancy about investment and finance in China, if you're not listening to the China Money Podcast, go check it out. Host Nina Xiang, for years now, has featured all kinds of interesting and knowledgeable folks who are in the thick of the world of finance and investment in China. The podcast is in iTunes. You can find it at Chinamoneynetwork.com. I've been listening for years. Some great guests on. People that really know what they're talking about. Go check that out with Laszlo Montgomery's highest recommendations. My fraternity brother, Mitch Stern, yes, sperm whale himself, informed me the other day that there are two guys at our alma mater, University of Illinois, who are broadcasting the Illini football games in Mandarin. The U of I, with 5,295 students on campus from China, is ranked first in the U.S. In 1980, when I was there, you had a total of about five or six Of course, I knew them all. So this is going to be that, something different this time. This story is just one drop in the bucket as far as examples of positive and constructive ways both Americans and British separately, or as one, did some good in China. Jack Jones and the Friends Ambulance Unit, a Friends Service Unit, like so many others and like so many listeners to this podcast, they had a soft spot in their heart for the Middle Kingdom. They came, gave of themselves, showed some love, and made a difference in a lot of people's lives. Laszlo Montgomery here, signing off from Los Angeles, California. Hey, baby, we got four Chinatowns. How many do you have? Join me next time, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.